Mark 9, I'm going to read from verse 14. You may recall this is um, following the Mount of Transfiguration. This is what happened immediately after that phenomenal experience. Mark 9, 14. When they came back, the disciples, to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground. And he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they couldn't do it. And he answered them and said, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion, and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? He said, from childhood. It's often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us, help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him, and don't enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. When he came into the house, the disciples began questioning him privately, why couldn't we drive him out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that in your providence you have given us an open Bible, a language that is comprehensible. We thank you, God, for your kindness to us in this. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, for the help and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that your word might come to us, helping us, inspiring, motivating us. We thank you. The entrance of your word brings light. We pray, Father, for your light to shine into our hearts, affecting us for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We hear so much these days of terrible stories of little children sometimes disappearing. And sometimes you see the police combing the countryside. I wonder if you've ever been invited to help something like that. I remember myself years ago when a boy disappeared in the back of a housing estate at the back of Brighton and uh, people were invited to join the police and I was one who volunteered to do that. And we combed the countryside, uh, uh, instructed by the police how to look and just watch every inch as we proceeded and uh, we didn't find him and uh, the mother was interviewed and uh, she said, well, sometimes he just seems to be outside of himself. He sometimes seems to, he just hurls himself, yes, into the fire sometimes. And actually the police in the end went to a medium and asked the medium, what should, what, 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 where should they be looking? Unusual thing to do, but they did. And the medium said, he'll be found in water. And within a week or two, the body was found in New Haven Harbour. And this boy had destroyed himself. An incredible thing. And so these kind of stories, which seem so remote now, you think, well, wait a minute, what, what is this all about? Well, actually, it's not so remote. It's not so distant. So let's come into it. Let's have a look at it. We see here that last time we looked at this, the story was that Jesus was on the mountain And in the mountain there was a manifestation of God's glory, a phenomenal encounter. Mountains in the Bible are often associated with revelation of God. Uh, God 
doing extraordinary things, rather like Moses went up to the mountain where there was smoke and fire and a revelation of God. Uh, Elijah on the mountain calls down fire from heaven. Uh, often in uh, Bible accounts there seems to be a drawing near to God as people ascend these mountains, but very often also uh, they're followed by a kind of tragic turn of events, like this one with Jesus, or like Moses came down from the mountain and in the valley they'd made the golden calf, they were, they were rebelling, they were sinning seriously. Elijah came down from calling down fire uh, from heaven only to confront Jezebel who says, I'll have your head off for that. And uh, this kind of encountering God and then facing setback, disappointment, sin. That's uh, a pattern that's often in the scripture and it will be like that until the day comes when God makes new heaven and new earth, when all evil is finally dealt with. And so Jesus said this, in the world you will have tribulation. And the word means pressure. In the world you will have pressure because, yes, there is this phenomenon of evil in society. And so we see stories like this. And so really, if I'm, I'm going to look at a few headings. The first one is the power, presence and reality of evil. The power, presence and reality of evil. You may have read C.S. Lewis' famous screw tape letters where he imagines a senior devil li- uh, writing letters to a junior devil. And in his introduction, C.S. Lewis says this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to have an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail the materialist or the magician with the same delight. So he's saying you can either be dismissive, saying, ah, I don't believe in such things, or you can be absolutely taken up. So those two extremes uh, are just as popular in ugly places because they will get you off course. See, modern man often fails to see evil as a power, and even we as Christians can see evil as a kind of just failure. We just hit the mark. It's not not where we should be. We're just... uh, uh, missing the point, missing the mark. But in the Bible, evil is clearly seen as a powerful thing. Now, even as Christians, we we, we tend to be affected by the Enlightenment that if you can't see it or understand it, it doesn't exist. That's the kind of mindset and worldview of a generation. Yeah, if you can't see it, if you can't scientifically demonstrate it, it's not there. Uh, And yet, the Bible's very plain about the manifestation of evil and its terrible power. Not just that it's missing something, there's an energy factor, there's a power factor involved which comes out so clearly in this story. And sometimes we as uh, believers are a little scared because if we talk about such things, it sounds a bit medieval, isn't this rather out of date? Or even theologically, we can say, well, we have a doctrine of the sovereignty of God. God is over everything. So we kind of play down. We think, well, our God will work it all out. And so that sense of conflict can be stolen from the church. But the book of Acts, the Gospels and so on, demonstrate conflict, demonstrate, yes, evil presence which has to be encountered and dealt with. And of course, it's particularly in the Northern Hemisphere, Europe, the USA, and places like that, where, yes, such things have been dismissed. If we go to other such places as South America, Africa, other places, uh, you don't have to do these preliminaries that I'm doing now because they're very aware of power, evil power. But that's often dismissed by Europeans as well, foolishness. But let's come to the Bible. Let's face what it has to say. It says in the Bible... Satan entered into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. It puts, of course, uh, Judas himself was a disloyal, dishonest man, but there was a, a power that entered into him that got hold of him, that drove and pushed him. That's what the Bible teaches. It says elsewhere that a couple called Ananias and Sapphira lied about what they were doing with finance, and the question is, why did Satan fill your heart? Satan was active. Satan was involved in what happened on that occasion. 
those two who offended against God. These things happen. Some years ago, when uh, there were a couple in Brighton who were living together, just a young couple, and one day they were in the flat they lived in, and suddenly they saw a terrible, ugly, horrific thing which made them flee from their flat. They just terrified. They saw it, they felt it, they ran. They went to a vicarage, uh, to a local church, and said what they'd seen, and the guy told them to go away. He went to two or three uh, and was told to go away. Eventually turned up at Church of Christ the King, and one of our elders went with him uh, to the house where they were staying, the flat, and prayed in the house. Uh, And that was the end of it. And then the guy sat down and thought, if there's evil, maybe there's good. And he'd never thought that before. He wasn't interested in Christian things, just a secular guy. And he suddenly had this awareness. There was evil. There was an evil power. I wonder if there's a good power. And he began to seek after God, became a Christian, got filled with God's presence, got married to the girl, actually came and lived with Wendy and us for a while, the two of them, until they'd found a home and got their lives settled and started their lives afresh. But it all started with the manifestation of evil, which terrified them, scared them. They, wouldn't, they were too terrified to go back into that flat alone because the evil that was present there. So here we see an evil that invaded a boy's life and suddenly would hurl him down into the fire and into the water, trying to destroy him. That's what's happening. And Jesus said this of the devil, the devil's coming to steal and kill and destroy. An evil enemy. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology says this, demons are evil angels who sinned against God and who now continually work evil in this world. Real personalities, real presence, they're active doing evil. And in the Bibles, there are many, many titles for them. Principalities, powers, dominions, thrones, princes, lords, gods, angels, spirits, unclean spirits, wicked spirits, demons. All those words are used, scattered through the New Testament. These enemy agents that are hostile to the human race and hostile to the church of God. So, wicked forces that can... It says in Ephesians 2, the prince of the power of the air works in the sons of disobedience. He he actually engages with people. He pushes people. I think sometimes when a crowd gets caught up in something and they, they suddenly push over into another dimension. It's like another force kicks in. And the Bible says the prince of the power of the air is at work in. It's at work in the sons of disobedience. So what happened in London a couple of years ago when suddenly there's fires and and shops are being broken and people who were neighbours with one another stole from one another uh, and suddenly London was a a wreck and a riot. What's happening? Especially across South London and it spread across the nation. And then afterwards when people were taken and apprehended, presented in court, some of them actually very responsible people. And they said things like this, I don't know what came over me. I don't know what ever came over me. I just got caught up in it. And just The Bible says the prince of the power of the air is at work. There's a, there's a kind of a evil influence that sometimes breaks in, breaks out. And of course, not only in crowds, when we hear the terrible things that happen these days with uh, sometimes a little girl is snatched and, and, and terrible things happen. They're killed and raped. And afterwards, guys say, I I couldn't help myself sometimes. Just when they open up, they explain that they felt driven. They felt overwhelmed. That sort of thing can fill our newspapers. And and, and when we hear that, we we wake up to the reality. Yet there is an evil power. And that's what we're looking at here in this story. It's against that backdrop, of course, that Jesus began his ministry. And it says of Jesus, the Son of God was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. That's one of those summary statements of why Jesus came. There are others, 
But that's one of them. The Son of God was manifested to destroy. He came declaring war. We were reminded at the beginning in Luke 4 how it says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. That was his opening sermon, his first preach. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to bring deliverance to captives. He saw many people vulnerable, ensnared, trapped, driven to do evil things often. Sometimes almost against their will, sometimes with their happy acceptance, but there's another energy kicking in, driving them, pushing them. And he said, no, I've come to declare war on that. I've come to set people free from that. I've come like a warrior. Even when he began his ministry in that same chapter in Luke 4, it says he was in the synagogue and while he's preaching, someone with an unclean spirit cried out in the synagogue. Not just in the streets, not just downtown, in the synagogue. Someone screamed out and he cast the demon out and this, wow, what is this? He expels demons just with a word. Well, who is this person who's got such power, who can do this, who can free people with a word? And his ministry continued to demonstrate that kind of power. And he said these things. He said this, If I, by the finger of God, cast out demons, then you know the kingdom of God is among you. God's rule is breaking out. So the kingdom of God isn't like a location. It's not like the kingdom of England or the principality of Wales. No, it's a place where the rule of God is manifested. It breaks out here and there where Jesus is ruling and reigning. And he said this, if I by the finger of God cast out demons, you know the kingdom of God is breaking through. My rule, my government is imposing authority on this and dealing with it. And he went about doing that. He commissioned his disciples to do the same. He said, now go, heal the sick, cast out demons. So that was part of the package. That was what was happening. That's how Jesus went. And later on when Peter is describing Jesus' ministry, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. So it's conflict. It's a battle. A.M. Hunter in his systematic theology says this, we shouldn't see Jesus as a high-souled teacher patiently teaching the multitudes with truths of timeless wisdom but rather see him as the strong son of God armed with his father's power spearheading the attack against the devil and all his works. Jesus came declaring war. Jesus came to throw back the powers of darkness and to establish the kingdom of his own in the earth. He commissioned his disciples to do the same. So wherever he went, evil was being pushed back. And then we come to this story this morning. We come to this story where Jesus has been uh, on the mountain. We looked at that last time we were in Mark, where he's there and suddenly his very figures glistening with glory. He's transfigured. The fact that he is God in the flesh, the veil's removed, is just an amazing manifestation. And Peter, James and John are there, they see this. And, uh, and then they come down and, and the first thing they encounter is this boy who's been brought by his father to Jesus' disciples that they might cast out the demon because that's the sort of thing that's happening around Jesus. And so this man brings the boy to Jesus, to his disciples. And what we see is this... Uh, encounter now with Jesus and his disciples. Let's remember that throughout the Gospels, it seems that Jesus is particularly focused on training up these twelve. Yes, he does bless the people, but he's especially training these guys. And so here we see an encounter, a training program, which actually is pretty shocking. If we just let the passage speak to us, it's pretty shocking. If it was scary uh, meeting with the evil spirit, I think it may be even scarier meeting with Jesus. Because he really confronts them pretty powerfully. His opening statement, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I put up with you? That's an extraordinary statement. 
It's not gentle Jesus, meek and mild, is it? It's kind of in-your-face Jesus. So how long do I put up with you? Now why did he say this? Why was he like this? Does that kind of fit your image of Jesus, that you'd expect him to come up to you and speak to you in that fashion? Because that's what we have in the passage. He's coming up and confronting them. Telling them off, actually. Come on, what are you doing? How long do I have to put up with you? Was Jesus just fed up? Just having a grumpy day? Well, the reality is, is that Jesus never said anything that he later regretted. He never said anything which he later took back. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. He is the exact revelation of God. He is a display of God in the flesh. This is the phenomenon of the incarnation, that God came in human form. And every time we open the Gospels and, and we see this man walking the earth, we have to remember at the end, Thomas bowed before this man and said, my Lord and my God. God in human form. Imagine standing before a man, a man that bumped into people in the marketplace, a man that you could easily have missed in the crowd, and kneeling before this man and saying, my Lord and my God. And it's the absolute truth. This is God walking among people and never having to take back anything he said. Because everything he said is perfect truth. This is perfect reality of God being uttered by a perfect man and being perfectly expressed. This is authentic reality. You unbelieving people. How long do I have to put up with you? And there's nothing wrong with Jesus. And so it's actually a very clear statement. He's actually showing God's attitude to their unbelief. Which actually you can see in the Old Testament in Numbers 14 and 27 where God says to Israel, whom he's delivered, he's brought through the Red Sea, he's destroyed the Egyptian army, he's provided for them food for uh, the journey, he brings them to the promised land and, and they won't go in, they won't take God's word, they won't accept what God says is true, I've given it to you, I've brought you out, I've done amazing miracles, now I give you this land and they wouldn't go in, they said no it's too difficult, we can't do this, it's out of our control, it's, it's too much for us to do. And God says, and it's recorded in the Old Testament, how long will I put up with this evil, this evil generation? So back in the Old Testament, these strong words. This is an evil generation. Why? Because they won't believe me. They won't put their trust in me. And that's, Jesus here is giving us a revelation of God's attitude to unbelief. And it's helpful for us, to be honest, although it's kind of shocking, because it doesn't fit our image of how we think of as Jesus. But it's very clear and it's very helpful for us to work through the, a gospel and see all sorts of aspects of Christ just by turning the pages and what happened next? What do we see next in this life that was lived? And here we see a life that's confronting his disciples and saying, how long do I have to put up with you? How soon is it going to be before you start believing me? It's a shocking thing. Hebrews 11 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. It also says, beware of an evil heart of unbelief in falling away from the living God. God sees that as evil, and I think we tend to think, well, I'm not as strong in faith as I should be, but God calls it an evil heart. It's like we make a choice, I can't believe him, I won't believe him. And so this is being put in the face of these guys and challenging them, confronting them with their attitude. That they're falling away from what? From a comfortable... No, no, they're falling away from being in touch with the living God. Fellowshipping with the God who's able, God who's adequate, God who's resourceful. You're falling away from being in touch with him. You're falling away from the expectation he's available, he's here, he can do what's needful. And so we get this confrontation. Jesus, it says on Mark 4, how is it that you have no faith? 
in Mark 6, he's amazed at their unbelief. So this keeps on recurring throughout this gospel. You might say, well, Jesus, this is not how I think of you. I don't think of you as being confrontational like this. But you see, Jesus wasn't able to be indifferent. He wasn't able to be indulgent or complacent. He can't passively accommodate their failure. He can't put up with it. Packer says this, moral indifference would be an imperfection in God. If if he didn't care, it would be an imperfection. If he was indifferent to their failure, it would be an imperfection in his character. He does care. He wants the best. He's looking for faith. And the fact there was no faith troubled him and he couldn't be quiet about it. He's got to be true to himself. So this reproof to them was a revelation of his heart. He's not like a kind of indulgent uncle or grandfather. He's God. And it matters to him that they're not demonstrating faith. He expected better from them. He was weary of them. He wanted more from them. He'd done so many things before them by now. And so he's looking for more faith. They had a problem with unbelief which he found unacceptable. And his anger was pure, holy and appropriate. It's good for us to put ourselves there. It's good for us to confront ourselves with that. Because it wakes us up to the reality that sometimes our faith comes and goes. We can sometimes just see being a Christian as an issue of morality. But the Bible is again and again showing it's an issue of faith where we believe what he says to be true. That's the big battle. This is the battle that overcomes the world, even our faith. So faith's a key issue. It's not a secondary matter. God is looking for us to rise in faith. And if it seems harsh to us, and I must confess in reading it at first, you think, wow, this does seem like a harsh thing. If it seems harsh to us, we've got to remember what the Bible says. Guess who's more reliable, really? Who's going to have the correct assessment? Is it Jesus or me? Now, his is going to be the correct assessment. And the Bible tells me this. He's the one who's going to judge the living and the dead. So his assessment is correct. The way he sees it is correct. So we've got to say, Lord, help me to come to where you are. Jesus walked in faith and courage and commitment to his Father. He walked in faith and he's inviting us into a faith relationship with him. He was full of faith. He was full of expectation. That's where he lived. He trusted his father continually and consistently. He's he's trying to draw these disciples to be like him, to be in his same attitude that he had to his father. In a sense, he was kind of scary. Being around Jesus... It was kind of scary in many ways. So the, the, the father turns to Jesus and says, uh, if you can do anything, and you get this extraordinary reply from Jesus, if you can? It's like, how, almost, how dare you? If you can? All things are possible to him who believes. So again, there's that, whoa, if you can? What do you mean, if you can? If you can do anything? And so we get Jesus challenging even the father here to say, come on, face up to this. And the man brings his cry, I believe, help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. And as he expresses humility, Jesus certainly comes to meet him, to help him, to flow in his full faith, to bring help to the man's ministry, to man's need. And confrontation with Jesus, the Jesus of the scriptures. He said in the Bible, he's a rock of offence. And we're to fall on that rock. And as we do, he, he will build us on his faithfulness. 
Sometimes it brings us to an end of ourselves. We say, Lord, I'm so sorry. I don't believe as I should. I don't have confidence in you that I want to have. And, and he kind of offends us sometimes. He makes us realize our weakness. And the Bible says that. We will fall on this rock in order that he might rebuild us, reshape us, reestablish us in confidence in him. And so we do get at the end this kind of interview and conversation that takes place between Jesus and the disciples. It's kind of afterwards. Well, what was that all about, Lord? What, what was that? What was that? And they come to him and say, why couldn't we? Why couldn't we cast out the demon? So Jesus was angry, but he was accessible. You could go and ask him, you could say, well, Lord, what was that about? You find that in Luke 24 as well. When, when they're, they're after the, the cross of Jesus and the resurrection, and he walks with these two on the Emmaus Road, and uh, it says, he says to them, you foolish and slow of heart to believe. And then he opened the scriptures and taught them everything about himself. And he caused their hearts to burn again. So yeah, he is angry with them, but he's accessible to them. You can come and ask. You can come and draw near. And they come and draw near to Jesus to find out and to ask him. I just want to make three comments about the conversation that happens First of all, what kind of frame of mind were these guys in when this happened? Well, if we look through, you'll find in the verses that follow, in verse 34, it says, they had been discussing with one another which of them was the greatest. It's a kind of removal of the veil of the frame of mind that was among them. They were competitive, they're saying, who's the greatest amongst us? They were so very different to Jesus. They were still not really caught up with his style, what he was wanting, the way he was working among them. He unveiled that, that there was this disagreement. They were competitively saying, who's the, who's the greatest? Not really the attitude of a, a, a people who would be praying. And then secondly, in verse 38, it says this, we saw some casting out demons in your name. We tried to prevent them. He wasn't with us. So again, this terribly dismissive attitude, this uh, very singular, no, they weren't with us, so we were against them, which again does not reflect the style of Jesus at all. They were out of step with Jesus. They were competitive among themselves. They're shutting up people who are not in their tribe. And so they're really missing it. They're sadly missing the situation. They were not having the characteristics of praying people. So that's an insight how they were in themselves. What were they doing? What was the atmosphere of the disciples at that time? Not very impressive. But notice the second thing I notice in this. It says, Jesus says, this kind can only come out through prayer. And then Jesus confronts, but doesn't pray. You notice that? He says, it only comes out through prayer. Then he says, get out. And he, well, uh, Jesus, you said this only happens through prayer. And yet he speaks with tremendous authority and deals with this, the situation. In fact, that was always Jesus' style. When he went to the Gadarene legion, who's full of demons, it doesn't say he prayed, he just cast out the demons. When he comes to Lazarus, probably the greatest miracle that Jesus ever did. This man's been dead. He's in, the, he's in the, the grave. And Jesus calls him out and then gives him back life. He, there's no evidence that he prayed. But actually there is evidence that it says the message got to him that Lazarus was sick and Jesus didn't go. He didn't, he didn't do anything about it. He stayed where he was. What do you think he was doing? Well, the Bible makes it so clear again and again that he would withdraw to pray. And so though he didn't pray at the site, his whole lifestyle was one of constant prayer. It says again and again, he got up early to pray. The disciples went to find him, he was praying. He prayed all night. He's constantly in prayer, calling on God continuously. And so, yeah, when it came to the actual confrontation, he deals with it, but he's coming from a background of prayer. That's his lifestyle. His fellowship with the Father was continual. He was continually in prayer. 
He was a man not just clocking up hours, but I'm sure praying himself into faith. He prayed because he was looking for his father's aid. He didn't do these things just because he was God. The Bible's quite clear about that. He did it empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him to do these things. He laid aside these many attributes in order that he might walk as a man dependent on the Holy Spirit and model a life empowered by the Spirit resting upon him. So he was continually in prayer. And then last of all, notice this. This kind comes only through prayer. Notice it doesn't say it will only happen if it's the will of God. It says if you pray, it will happen. If you don't pray, it won't. Now, it's important to let that hit us because so often we feel, well, if it's God's will, it will work through. If it's God's will, it will happen. But Jesus said concerning this, this kind only comes if you pray. It doesn't say this kind only comes if it's the will of God. It's if you pray. He rolls the burden back and says, no, no, this, whether you pray is going to affect the situation. In saying that, he's, he's telling us something phenomenal about prayer, that in our relationship with God, God has given to the church, to us believers, a contact with an energy that affects things. This will only happen if you pray. If you don't pray, it won't happen. That's what he's saying. This reminds me too of Luke 18, where Jesus told the story, and he, he's talking about prayer to us, and he says, here's a story I'll tell you, And he talks about an unjust judge. He says he doesn't fear God or man. And he can't be bothered to give this woman justice. And the woman comes and pursues him, pursues him, pursues him. Says, give me justice, give me justice. And at the end, he gives her justice. And he says, I'll give her justice because if I don't, she'll wear me out. So the secret isn't justice always prevails in the end the secret is she won't let go of me so I'll give her justice she has to seek me for justice she has to pursue me for justice not because justice prevails but because she pursued me if she had not pursued me this wouldn't happen if she had not kept on at me this isn't going to happen but she pursued me so I gave her justice it worked out all right because she pursued me. It's such an important thing for us to remember, dear friends, as a, as a church. I've just been reading a really helpful book called The Circle Maker by a man called Mark Batterson, who's from Washington, D.C., has a church of many thousands. And he tells in this, it's full of stories of their experience in terms of, uh, first of all, getting land, because uh, they started just as a tiny little fellowship another thousands, multi-site all over Washington, D.C. And how they battled in prayer for land, for buildings, for property in Washington, D.C. I mean, this isn't in the country. This is in a place of uh, intense building programs, incredibly expensive property. And they just learned about prayer. And he says here, God has determined that certain expressions of his power will only be exercised in response to prayer. Simply put, God won't do it unless you pray for it. This is the story of uh, what he's testifying to here. I mean, I've read such things many, many times in the past through missionary biographies and books on prayer, etc. And I guess we have our own stories we can tell. But it's so plainly stated here This will only come if you pray. It won't happen if you don't. He'll only be released if you pray. It's only going to come about if you pray. And so God has got this wonderful arrangement with the church that we can kind of move the hand of God. The fervent prayer of a righteous man, it says in James 5, has great power in its working. 
Do we believe that? It has power to break through, has power to affect things, has power to change what would have happened if we hadn't, if we hadn't prayed, it wouldn't happen. If it's the will of God, it'll happen. No, no. If you hadn't, the Bible's saying explicitly, if you didn't pray, it won't happen. And so you find with great, great churches, like Jim Cimbala's church, also in, in New York, fresh faith, fresh fire. He talks about their prayer time is the key time in their church. He says, don't assess my church by what happens on a Sunday. Assess my church by the prayer meeting. That's, that's who we are. That's who this church is. The prayer meeting is the reflection of what this church is. And they have got the famous, most famous choir in America uh, that goes out for the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. But he said often at their, their choir practices, they've got this huge and very effective choir, often the, pre- <laughs> the choir practices turn into a prayer meeting. And a friend of mine who visited the church, Owen Hilton, who's in the, the church in Brixton, he went and visited the church. So went to the prayer meeting, he said, it lives up to its reputation. It's phenomenal. Like over a thousand people at the prayer meeting midweek, crying out to God. And God doing wonderful things. Beloved, we have a huge power available. We have prayer meetings too, twice a month. Getting more and more alive. More and more sense of God with us. More and more sense of God engaging with us. That's the powerhouse of the church. I would love to invite us, let's let's try and be there. Because it says, if you pray, things happen. If you don't, this kind only comes out through prayer. This breakthrough only comes through prayer. I remember hearing a year or so back of a guy who got knifed to death outside one of the nightclubs in Kingston. Yeah, there's a battle over Kingston. The battle with evil, lives getting destroyed, drugs being taken, girls throwing away virginity week after week, lives being messed up. Sad, sad things happening. Devastation, really, as the drug culture hits our town. And wickedness and evil powers pushing things along. And God is saying to us, power is available if you pray. If you pray, it'll come. The breakthrough will come. You get the story, don't you? When Joshua's being trained in the Old Testament and there's a battle against the Amalekites and and Moses goes up into the mountain to pray. He he lifts up the rod of God. But the rod of God speaks of God's covenant promises because God at the very beginning when when he invited Moses into a relationship with him he said, what's that in your hand? And it's a stick, it's a rod. He throws it on the ground, it becomes a serpent. Pick it up again. Wow, pick it up again. And he picks it up, becomes a rod again. And it kind of speaks of this relationship. And when he opens the Red Sea, it's like, hold the rod over it and it opens. It speaks of God's commitment to him, God's promise to him. You'll find a number of the plagues that happen. He has to lift up the rod of God. It's, it's saying, look, I am with you. I'm committed to you. Trust me. I'll work with you. I'll fellowship with you. And so very often, Moses engaging with God is lifting up the rod to God. And God's saying, yeah, I promised I'll be with you. And it happens. One thing after another happens. And then you get his beginning to hand over to Joshua. And so Moses goes to the mountain. He's holding up this covenant relationship with God. Meanwhile, Joshua's in the valley with his sword and his a soldier leading the army into battle. And as he's going forward, Moses has his rod up. He's saying, Lord, do this thing. And, and, and it says Moses begins to grow weary. And guys kind of hold his arms up. Aaron and her hold his arms up. And it says that uh, as, as his arms are raised, as this prayer thing's going on, Joshua's going forward, yeah, I'm quite a soldier here, here we go, here we go. And uh, uh, I'm pretty powerful with this sword. And Moses begins to flag. And Joshua finds, hey, what's going on? Hey, I'm just like this, you do this, don't you? And, uh, and it's directly proportionate that when Moses' hands are raised, they go forward. And when Moses' hands come down, Joshua's going backwards. Directly, directly proportionate. Joshua has to learn, though, 
the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're mighty through God to the pulling down of the strongholds. They're mighty through God. There's a power available to us to drive back the powers of darkness, to win battle, and it only comes through prayer. And so if we read stories of great churches, you'll find behind them, C.H. Spurgeon said, you'll never understand my ministry if you didn't attend our prayer meeting. There's a praying force behind them. And here God is inviting us, I believe, to see, yeah, he's committed to being with us. He wants to help. And yet he's made this arrangement with us. He's in covenant relationship with us. He's saying, if you will ask, this only happens if you ask. It's not, it works out if it's the will of God. There's a mystery in God's sovereignty, but there's an explicit statement here. This will only happen through prayer. If you pray, it will happen. Story after story can be told. I love reading about people like Hudson Taylor and J.O. Fraser and, and, and people who just in the end sought God because they hit problems, difficulties, delays. Then they would pray and do another breakthrough. Another breakthrough. God wants us to glorify Jesus in our generation. He wants to drive back evil and wickedness. God's heart breaks about the stories that fill our newspapers. The terrible stories we read about what's happening, yeah, to little children and other nations. Lives being trafficked, treated as absolute trash. What can change that? What can change that? I saw it in the HTB programme on television recently, at least on my laptop when they were getting testimonies from the floors. 5,000 people at Royal Albert Hall and Nicky Gumbel got this guy up and he's huge, I mean he's massive, he's got great shoulders and they call him the most dangerous man in prison in England or words to that effect. He used to carry a baseball bat. What a nice man to meet. He's huge and his eyes are filled with tears and he's talking about how he met Jesus. And he said, the number of lives that have not been damaged because I met Jesus. He said, the number of crimes I committed, he said, I was put into prison because of one of them. I committed many others. And every other person we see changed, the number of crimes they'll stop. The gospel transforms lives. The gospel transforms society. The gospel is the answer to the terrible, terrible shame of our nation at the moment. Only the gospel can change. Morality doesn't do it. It has to be Jesus coming. And he's inviting us to pray. He's inviting us to engage with him. Say, Lord, won't you break this power? Won't you break through him? Won't you show your mercy? Won't you show your ability? Why, this boy, he, he's as good as dead. It looks like he's died. Jesus commands the demon to leave. It looks like he's dead. Takes him by the hand, raises him up, gives him back to his father. Wouldn't you love to do that in our generation? To raise up kids, give them back to their homes. Say, here, start again. I've made him whole. Start again. I think of a new day coming up soon. 7,000 teenagers and they're going to be, yes, Lord. We can start building lives for the glory of God. God wants us to trust him, believe him, be in step with him. So here we get the story. Jesus confronting evil, weary of unbelief, making disciples, training them, exciting with his, his ultimate ability. If you're freshly looking in on the church today, just a notice from the story, the church failed if you like, Jesus didn't. Jesus will never fail. Jesus will always win through. Jesus will teach us to believe. As you go on through the Gospel stories, as you especially get into the book of Acts, these same men are thoroughly believing Jesus. They're crying out to him. They encounter difficulties. They're told, don't longer preach in this name. And they come straight above to God. Oh, the sovereign Lord, look at their threats. Look how they're trying to stop us. Stretch forth your hands. Show signs and wonders. On they go. They've learned their lesson. They're crying out to the sovereign God. They're believing him. They're proving him. Why don't we do that?
why don't we change things? Why don't you get it in your diary, prayer meeting, Sunday nights, Tuesday nights, a couple of times a month. God, come and do something wonderful for your glory. This kind only happens through prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you so much that we have it in our hands. Thank you for a Jesus who doesn't just fit our mould. Not an avuncular, easygoing, passive figure, but one in our face sometimes. One confronting us sometimes. One sometimes using scary words like, how long do I have to put up with you? Lord, I want, I want those words to challenge me. I want them to change me. I don't want to hear that, Lord, from you. I want to hear different words from you. And I, pray you I pray you bless your word to us today that we might more and more be a people who don't have to hear that from you. But you can celebrate over our faith. You can look on in joy, even as you did with many biblical women and men whose faith so pleased you. So work it into us, Father. Bring it about. Jesus, we do applaud and praise you that you had mercy on this boy whose life had been wrecked by a demonic invasion. You completely freed him. You completely set him alive again. You... You rescued him, Lord, from powers he couldn't control. We thank you, Jesus, you do that. We're here to worship you, Jesus. You, you rescue us, Lord, from things too great for us, things that we battle with. Yet even from our unbelief, you do come to rescue us. You do come to make us whole, to put us back on our feet. Father, we just pray for one another that we, we might please you with our bold confidence in you. Lord, we want to pray with this man. We do believe. Help our unbelief. We thank you, Lord, that 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 prayer did not disqualify him. We thank you that prayer was enough. I do believe. Help my unbelief. Thank you, said your faith has to be like a mustard seed. We just want living, true living faith. Help us to cultivate it. Help us to grow in it. Have us bring you glory, even here in Kingston, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.